flipping your Bibles to Galatians chapter three. We're gonna be there in just a minute. March of 2013, I got an opportunity to go to Israel. Now, it was an amazing experience, but as we look at the book of Galatians, and as we look at really the law, I really got a firsthand glimpse of what it looks like to be bound by the law. An example of that would be this. We checked into our hotel in the city of Jerusalem, and we got there on a Friday, okay? And if you know anything about Jewish culture, basically Friday is the Sabbath. And so at six o'clock, everything closes down, okay? And in the hotel, this is what happens in the hotel. In the hotel, you have eight working elevators, but only one of them works on the Sabbath. And when you have a busload of 45 people plus three more buses of other teams from around the world coming, then oh my goodness, you have a backlog. Because why? You are stuck and bound not to have the elevator work on that day. I really honestly just wanted to say, can, can I have the Jesus elevator? Somebody please, can I get on that Jesus elevator? Then, then there's another example of that. We went into a restaurant. We're in a museum. We went downstairs to the restaurant. And I was downstairs and um, we were uh, getting ready to eat. Now, there's this food over there. I, I can't really say it really well, but it's, it's, it's meat and it, you have a lot of it, okay? And so I can't really say the word, really. I get all tangled up in my braces here. So I, basically what happens is all, my, all the team went over to get this stew with meat in it. And I was like, I really don't want that again. So I'm gonna go on the other side of the room and I'm gonna get something else. And I walked over to the something else and I saw this like tortilla with cheese in it. And I thought, man, this is awesome. I I'm gonna get this instead of getting that. So I got the tortilla and I got the cheese and I walked all the, because where I got my stuff was completely on the other side of the room. And so I walked over, I sat down with my team and the team was like, yeah, this is kind of the same thing that we've had before. They were critiquing it like we, you know, we always do. And then I was like, dude, you gotta eat. This is awesome, okay? This is a cheese tortilla and it is phenomenal. And my, the bus driver, who was from Israel, he says, hey, shut up. You're eating cheese. They're eating meat. If they find out that you're eating cheese next to people who are eating meat, they're gonna throw all the food away, clean all the tables and start over and they're gonna be very mad at you. I went, wow. I got a firsthand glimpse of the law. And I just wanna let you know right now, I'm grateful for elevators, especially if you're on the 14th floor that work every single day of the week. And I'm also grateful that I can have roast beef and cheese on my sandwich. Thank you, Jesus, amen? Amen, amen. And, and so really what we're doing is we're taking a look last week at how the law was incompetent to bring us into a relationship with Christ. It was never meant to do that, it was to reveal our sin. John Stott says this, we cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses. Now, let me make sure you understand, Moses is the one who gave us the law, all right? 613 of them. All of these laws, in order to abide by them, you must have all of them. Missing one would be you're, you're guilty of it all. So what does he say? You first have to come to Moses to be condemned. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, our guilt, basically our sin has been revealed and our condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses or the law send us to Christ. And really, that's where our text sort of picks up this week. You know, last week we learned that the law was like a tutor or a guardian. 
That's what it was. It was never meant to, never designed to bring us into relationship with Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says this. The true use of the law is this, that I know that by the law, I am being brought into an acknowledgement of sin and am being humbled so that I may come to Christ and be justified by faith. And our text this morning goes from last week, verse 25 ends with, that was the law, and then it comes into a beautiful, beautiful relationship that is accomplished by Jesus adopting us and thereby calling us a son of the living God, which there is nothing better. There really is nothing better. My son came to me last night and goes, what are you preaching on, Dad, tomorrow? I said, Jesus. He said, you always preach on Jesus. And I'm like, that's exactly right. You learned that really well. We have this little, we have this little saying here at the church that for this sermon series that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that is your formula. If we were to give you a test, if we were to give you a test, then basically not only have we given you what it means, the formula, but we've given you the answer that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Reminds me of this guy who went to take a test at UNC Chapel Hill. He went to take a test. He needed one class to graduate. It was a science test. It was ornithology, the study of birds. He had to take this class to be able to graduate. He went in, he took the test. He got ready to prepare to take the test. He studied. He knew everything about the birds. He knew their flight patterns. He knew their feathers. He knew the beaks. He knew what they would eat. He knew absolutely everything he could know about the birds because of the study of ornithology. And he got ready to go in to take the test. He said, I'm prepared. I'm going to graduate. I walk in to take the test. And all over the room are these big pictures of bird legs. He said, Matt, I want to let you know I did not prepare and did not learn about bird legs. I learned the flight patterns, their eating habits, and all their feathers, and all this kind of stuff. And he said, finally, I just closed my test. I walked up to the professor, and I said, listen, you told us that it was going to be about birds, not bird legs. And he said, I, I don't know anything. And he says, well, I just want you to know that if you leave here, you're going to get a zero on this test. And he said, well, nothing I can do. I can't identify the birds based on those pictures. And he said, well, pass in your test. He laid it down there. He walks out. The professor goes, hey, hey. Wait a minute, before you leave, what is your name? He was really ticked off. He said, I go, you tell me. <laughs> you tell me. I want to tell you something. If we give you a test about the gospel in the book of Galatians, I don't want to see your ankles. I don't want to see your legs. But what we do want to do is we want to see a word and a life that demonstrates and breathes the living gospel. The living gospel. Turn in Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three, let's take a look at what it says. I'm gonna read it in its entirety for you this morning and then we're gonna break it down verse by verse, okay? So Galatians chapter three, starting in verse uh, 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to, to the promise. I mean, this is chapter four, verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. It's a little bit of background before we jump right into the text to make sure that we're all on the same page of what a guardian is. Now, last week we learned that the law was a guardian. It was a tutor. It was to show us and reveal to us our insufficiency in terms of salvation by ourselves. Now, what we do, what we do see is that there were very prominent people, the guardians or managers, that would take care of children of those that were in Gentile families or those that were in Jewish families. And then they, they would be taking care of them, they would, be, they would be watching over them, they would take care of their finances, they would get them to and from school, they would do a lot of things for those children. But then there was a certain time set aside by the father whereby they would leave adolescence and move on to manhood or move into adulthood. It would be a set aside time that they would move into. So when you use the word guardian or tutor, they first understand that there is a physical guardian, a person who took care of the children. But then last week, last week we learned that the guardian was the law. So their understanding basically is like, okay, I understand this. Now, that's important as we continue on through the text. Let's take a look at verse 20. I'm gonna start with 25, because 25 is really important. We learned it last week, we'll, we'll read it again this week. 25 says this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Wow, praise God. Everybody said? Amen, amen, thank you, Jesus. So verse 26 is basically gonna start by saying, this is who you are, this is what you have. He starts with basically the end in sight. He looks at him and says, for in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God. He starts off in 26 by saying, for in Christ Jesus. Basically what he's saying is that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes absolutely everything. Jake, my son, is absolutely convinced that Jesus changes everything. The other night, we were in, in the bed, I was tucking the boys in, got them up there, got in their bed, tucked them, prayed for them. You know how the process starts, parents. You start at 8.30, and by 8.45, or 9.45, you're hoping they're in the bed. Amen? Amen. So Jake and I, are, and I'm tucking him, and I'm in the middle of the bed, and I'm praying with him, and I'm praying, and we're doing all this kind of stuff, and Jake cannot go to sleep without you praying for everybody's teacher. Everybody's teacher. Molly's teacher, Andrew, Luke, and everybody's teacher. Well, after I get done praying, Jake goes, Dad, 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 it's my turn. I gotta pray. He's very dramatic. I have no idea who he gets it from. And I gotta pray. I've got to pray right now. And I said, all right, buddy, go ahead, pray. And he, man, he is praying Jesus down on everybody. And then finally he gets to this point and he wants snow for Christmas so bad he can't stand it. And so finally gets to this place and he's like, Dad, be with the teachers, be with everything. And Jesus, please give us snow at Christmas time. Booyah, Amen. I'm like, that's ESPN in the gospel. Amen, that's awesome. I love it, right? And so here's what's beautiful about this at Christmas time is you look at your kids and honestly, I'm just being really transparent with you. The overwhelming fact of when my son prayed is it sounded a lot like us, the way that we pray. And I use that as a challenge to you, as an endorsement to Pray with your kids tonight. And here's what, here's what, here's what Jake, and here's what, what Paul is saying. For in Christ Jesus, that changes everything. Everything is different when we are 
in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, because when you're in Christ Jesus, what happens? You are all sons of God. The word sons of God is the word that we have for adoption. It's basically saying, hey, you don't have a home, you don't have parents, you don't have an inheritance, and you really don't really understand what love is. But then when you are adopted, you are in Jesus, you are a son of the living God, which the Jewish people thought was only reserved for Jesus himself. They thought, hey, the son of God, that's Christ. That's only reserved for him. So here comes God. He adopts us. He adopts us into himself and says, you are a son of God. That overwhelmed them. So that changes everything. How is this change brought about? Well, it's very clear. The Bible teaches that it's brought about by faith. He says it right there. Acts 4.12 says, for there is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's great. It's not by works, least any man should boast, for it is the gift of God. It's not our works. So it's very clear. Let's go to 27. 27, man. We have this spiritual adoption in 26. He comes to 27, he says, for as many of you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, I wrestled with this verse right now because there are a lot of people that thought it was a physical baptism, actually somebody going down and being physically baptized. But there were very few that said that it was a spiritual baptism. And I am absolutely, Brian and myself, we've talked about this, we are absolutely convinced that what is talked about in verse 27 is a spiritual immersion of Jesus in someone's life. It is not the physical act of baptism, it is the spiritual act of being immersed in Christ. Here's why. Paul was very clear and understood what he was trying to accomplish with the Galatians because they believed that you were justified by works. Paul in no way under the leadership of the Spirit would add a work at this particular time in this particular text in this particular context. He would always, he's using something right now. See, let me give an example. Look what he did, look what happened when they talked about circumcision. They went, Jesus plus this equals everything. So Paul is not using the physical act of baptism. He is referencing a spiritual cleansing of the most high God that makes us a child and a son of God. And that's the cleansing that we see and what we get. And in the second part of the verse saying, baptized into Christ, having put on Christ. Now, let's go back to the guardian or the bar mitzvah that the Jewish folks have, a bar mitzvah or a bar mitzvah, or what's called a togo virus. I hope I said that right. But those are two basically points in a, in, a, in a child's life where they move from adolescence into manhood or womanhood. That's where they move on, all right? Now, what would happen is, is they would take off their clothes. The fathers would take off what they're wearing, and then they would put on something else. And what Paul is saying right here is, you've taken off that, you've taken off of being unforgiven of your sins, and you've put on Jesus, and he's immersed you and cleansed you. And so therefore, it's a spiritual baptism of being immersed in Jesus himself. Let's go to 28. Look at 28, what it says. He first says there was neither Jew nor Greek. Now listen, in honor of different strokes, they would probably look and say, what you talking about, Willis? You, you know, if you're over 40, you know exactly what I'm talking about, all right? What you talking about, Willis? Because here's what happens. You have a bunch of Jewish people in the audience with a bunch of Greeks. And he basically says this, you've been adopted, you are a son of God, and then it says, Therefore, there is, no, there is neither Jew nor Greek. He's saying, wait a minute, you're putting us on the same plane? 
Because the Judaizers are already telling, the Judaizers are already telling them that you have to do this, this, and this in order to be saved. And Paul comes right out to the power of God to say, hey, listen, there is even playing field. He continues and says, there is neither slave nor free. He comes and says, there is neither male and female. Now let's just make sure we understand. You are not losing your distinctiveness. Liberal theology takes this verse and says, you cease being a man, you cease being a woman when you come to Christ. And I would say, hello? Really? That's, that's weird. That's a little different. The, the Asian man does not stop being Asian. The woman does not stop being a woman. The man does not stop being a man. What happens here is he says, I'm not trying to eliminate your distinctiveness. What I'm trying to do is make you one. Because when you are one, you will be most effective in the plan that I have for your life. I'm not trying to eliminate your distinctives in your life. I'm just trying to make you one. And basically, it's an actual fulfillment of John 17. Jesus was praying and he says, Father, I pray that they will be one as we are one. And here Paul is saying, hey, I am for God, I'm for Jesus. Jesus is the center of everything. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that we are one. So I would ask you this question. How effective do you think we can be if we have these distinctions that we oftentimes exploit intentionally and unintentionally? How effective will Northwest Community Church be in the community that God has sovereignly positioned and placed us if we continue, if we make these distinctions a bigger deal than the gospel makes them. But how beautiful will it be if all of a sudden our church looks like the way heaven is going to look like one day, where every, every tribe is represented, every tongue is represented. And man, that's, I think, what he's trying to say. Hey, listen, there are distinctions. Race, rank, and sex separate us, and at times we exploit those. You're better than this person because of this. Jesus comes through Paul. Paul says right now, listen, what Christ has done in adopting you, what he's done in rescuing you, what he's done in redeeming you, allows us not to eliminate our distinctives. It brings us together as one, and one so that we can be effective with what he's called us to do. If you go and turn in your Bibles to chat two, verse 29, look at verse 29. I was really wrestling with this text this week, and I was like trying to figure out, okay, where, where does this come? And, and the Lord really brought it together. And it says in verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now let's just go. The Judaizers believe this. The Judaizers believe that if they followed the law, then they would, in, they would inherit the promises that were given to Abraham. And if you remember those promises given to Abraham, it's actually the promises in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. You know, your descendants of many, the stars in the heaven, I mean, all of that. That's what they were searching for. They believed that if they lived by the law, then that's how they got those promises. What Jesus came to do is that, no, 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 you don't get those promises through obeying the law. What he says is, you get the promise of eternal life when you are here. Listen, when you are in Christ, when you're immersed, when you are adopted, when you are redeemed, that's where you get the promise not beginning the promise by following the law. Aren't you grateful for that? I know I am. I mean, that's good news. That's really good news. And as Paul comes to 26, excuse me, 26 through 29, he comes and he has these verses and he says them. He's basically saying, starts from the beginning and says, okay, this is what you are. And then you're in Christ, in Christ. And he comes down, he says, you got spiritual union, you got a spiritual adoption. And then he comes down to the last verse 
and you think, okay, that ends. We're going into another chapter. But actually, when you read chapter four, it kind of goes in. The argument continues. It, it reminds me of Nell and Clarence Edwards. Nell and Clarence Edwards are friends of ours in Apex, North Carolina. Clarence is still around. Nell has gone to be with the Lord. But Dana and I met them. When I met them, they were probably 78 years old, and that was 20 years ago. And Nell and Clarence, we would go over to their house, and we could sit with them and talk to them, just sweet, sweet, godly couple. And we would sit there, and if, if you talk slow, then Clarence is like on the slow chart way over here. If this is slow, Clarence is like way over here because he's slower than slow in the way that he talks, all right? And so this is what Clarence would do. We would sit down with Clarence, and Clarence would tell a story. He's like, and Matt, everything had two syllables or four or five or it was exaggerated, and he would drag it out and drag it out and drag it out, and then he would finish by saying, in other words, and then he would tell you the same thing he told you, but in a different way. So Dana had that little joke if I tell her something and she's like, you just told me that. In other words, it's kind of a funny thing in her house because of Clarence, because Clarence, he'll tell you something and then he'll slow it and he'll say, and you're there for another 20 more minutes and you've already heard it, but you're gonna hear it again a different way, all right? Now, here's what happens. How does that connect to our text? I know you're wondering, I'm glad I have you right now, okay? Here's what happens. What he tells us is he tells us you've been adopted. You have a spiritual adoption. You have been immersed by Jesus. There is a unity that is brought through being adopted by the most high God. You have an inheritance that's been given to you, not because of your obedience to the law, but because of being in Christ, which he says seven times in 26 through 29. And then he comes to chapter four, one through seven, and he says it the same way, just a little bit different. So, in honor of Clarence, in other words, let's look at chapter four, one through seven, all right? Take a look at, this is what he says. I mean that the heir, the heir is someone, stop right there, the heir is someone who is a rightful owner of an estate, but it's someone who doesn't have the privileges of using it right now. He says, as long as he is a child. Now, the word child, when you look at it, is it a 10-year-old? Is it a seven-year-old? Actually, it's an infant, in my mind, I picture somebody sitting in a high chair, with chubby arms, no neck, and big legs right there. Can't do anything. That's what I picture, okay? So he says there's a child, and the child is an infant. He's young, or she's young, and unaware, unaware. And then he comes and he says, is no different, the child is no different than the slave, though he's the owner of everything. So that child is the owner of everything, but there comes a certain point in time whereby he comes to have the right of all his inheritance, all right? Then we come down to verse two. What does verse two say? But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now remember, there's a physical guardian. That's what's been talked about here. The physical guardian is to care, is to watch out, is to get the person, get the child ready to go into manhood. That person is, is there to guide them, to, to care for them, to watch out for them. And then when the father understands, when the father sees that he's ready to go into manhood, leaving adolescence, saying, hey, I'm not holding your hand in the parking lot anymore. You're a big boy. You know, that's kind of what he said. You're, you're moving into manhood. That's what you're going to do. And there's a date that's set by the father. The date is very different for other children. And honestly, I believe they had a better understanding of getting men ready to be men than I think we do. You know, for, for us, it's like, okay, when you're 16, you can drive. 
When you're 18, you know, you can vote and you can go into, you can go fight in the war, enlist in the war. When you're 21, you can, um, you can drink alcohol. And when you're 25 or 23, somewhere around there, you can rent a car. Okay, so do you see what's going on right here? You see what's going on? It's, it's in essence, in essence, in our culture has somewhat delayed becoming what a true man of God or one woman of God is. Here I think they really had a good understanding of what it means to get them ready. Now, where are we right now? We're here with the living God, understanding the true gospel that really gets us ready to make a difference in the world and be able to be a man. He also goes on and says this. In verse three it says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The elementary principles of the world are like the ABCs of life. It's just something really intimate. I, I like what Pastor Lawson said in Mobile, Alabama. He says this, that it's basically ideologies and philosophies that governed our lives outside of the gospel. So when it's compared to the gospel, with the way that you're living, with the, everything that you're living by, when it's compared to the gospel, it's elementary. It's, it's like, you know, it's, it's kindergarten compared to learning and understanding what it means to be a minister of the gospel or a part of the gospel. And this is what you were like before you were adopted. Then he comes to verse four, which is actually a very personal verse for myself and Dana. And, and, and I really hope it'll be a great encouragement to you. But it says this in verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, see what he's doing first, he's saying, hey, this is what you were like. All right, you were enslaved, you were a child, you did not have an inheritance, but there is a certain time in your life that is preordained by God whereby you will come to recognize, number one, you are a sinner, and number two, you cannot save yourself. And number three, Jesus is that answer. And then he comes and he says, fullness of time. Now the fullness of time is the sovereign timing of the Lord in all things. We were, we were told for four and a half years we couldn't have kids. Let me just remind you of something. I have four kids in four years and six months. Who's wrong? You know, I've, I've said this to you before, but this verse was the verse that Dana and I clinged to because the fullness of time means that there is a sovereign God who works and there is a sovereign timetable. And when we are in Christ, in Christ, then we fight and we, we fight and we fight to believe that his timing is absolutely perfect even when we're in the midst of begging and pleading God to do something we don't understand, why he's not doing it. Some of you right now, you're, you're single, and you're like, why am I single? And I would say, don't let that singleness distract you from being in Christ and the fullness of time and the perfect plan he has for your life. I would say, strive to be the person that you're, you're looking for is looking for. Strive to be the person that you're looking for is looking for. And you can only be that person when you are in Christ and adopted by Christ. Maybe there's a job situation or a marriage situation and maybe there's a family situation or family's coming in at Christmas time and you've been praying years, God, reconcile this situation. We're getting ready to go into Christmas. I'm really anxious about this kind of stuff. Here, let me just remind us. The fullness of time reminds us that we serve a perfect God and his timing is always perfect. And when we are in Christ, we will recognize that and we will see it. Not only that, the timing is perfect religiously, culturally, and politically. You see, at this time, Israel had come out of Babylonian captivity, and they did not, for the first time, go back into idolatry, which they had done for a long time. They did that a lot, over and over again. 
Well, when they came back out, they didn't. Ezra had gotten them the Old Testament, and basically they had synagogues, and so they were able to have a place to study. So here comes Jesus at this point in time where they have synagogues, they have the Old Testament, they have a place to be able to study. And not only that, but the language of the time was Koine Greek. And so the language that they were all using was a, a familiar language. It wasn't many languages, it was Koine Greek, which is very familiar to everybody. And also there was political, there was a, a, an agreement that was signed called the Pax Romana, which is, basically says Roman peace. And basically when that was signed, the roads all over Rome and all over the place were basically opened highways and it was safe to travel. And what could happen is they could get the gospel all over the place. And at this point in time, it was a beautiful time for Christ to come because of all of these things. And as a result of him coming at that time, you and I know Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that right there is pretty awesome. That right there is awesome. If you look at it in the second part of the verse, it says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now, if you were to say Matt Rice, you are born of Rita and Shelton Rice. That's my mom and dad. But you look at this text and it says, born of woman, which shows us very clearly that Jesus is fully man, yet fully God. He is completely different. Then it says he's born under the law. You see, what was designed was there had to be someone to obey the law in its entirety. And so, yes, Jesus was born, in, born into the world, and yes, he cried, and yes, he ate, and yes, he, you know, spit up. But what, thing, what he did not do is he did not sin, and he obeyed the law completely. And because he did that, here's what happens. And he did that so that we, in verse 5, to redeem us, to redeem those who are under the law. That means to buy back, to make payment so that we might receive the adoption as sons, to buy back. Under the law, we were born under the law, but Jesus was born under the law so that he could redeem those born under it. Let me go to the last part, verse six and seven. Take a look at verse six. I love studying this this week. It says in verse six, it says, and because you are sons, all right, so now he's saying, hey, this is what I did for you. You were a child, you were an infant, you were incapable of doing anything. You had an inheritance, but you're incapable of using that inheritance. Then there came a sovereign time where God comes to save you. And then because he saves you, and then because you are sons, he says in verse six, and because you are sons, because you've been adopted, because you've been justified, God has sent the spirit of his son into the hearts, praying, Abba, Father. So what was the law doing for us? The law was revealing to us that we could not save ourselves. We could not obey the law. But here is God the Father who says, hey, I'm not going to just send you anyway. I'm gonna send you my spirit to do what? To be a guardian, to be a tutor, to guide you to the things I want you to know. He gives us his spirit. And when he gives us his spirit, he were able to call out him on Abba Father. See, here's the difference. The Galatians at this particular time, they would look at God and they saw him as a boss. They did not see him as a father. The word Abba Father means daddy or papa. It's one of great intimacy, great, great relationship, great love. And when he's basically saying the Galatians are looking at God as a boss, and therefore when you look at God as a boss, you read the Bible as a rule book so that you can please your boss. That's what you do. You read the rule book so that you can please the boss. I don't wanna, I don't wanna get him mad. I wanna do this, do this, do this, and I'm good. 
However, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, he changes that. He's not a boss. He's a loving, heavenly Father who redeemed you, who adopted you, so that you might have life and have it to the full. Man, that is unbelievable. That's unbelievable. You know, some of you right now, you're sitting there going, to think of God as a father because of the way my father was to me is incomprehensible. And you say, Matt, you don't know what he did to me. I would say, no, I don't know what he did to you, but I know what your heavenly father did for you. And don't allow the insufficiency or the sin of your earthly father allow you to misrepresent or have an, a skewed view of your heavenly father who wants you and sends the spirit in you to call him Abba Father, your daddy. And, and there's some of you that say, well, man, my dad was awesome. He, and, and that's great. But even on your dad's best day, he wasn't what King Jesus did for you. He died to set us free so that we would be redeemed, we would be adopted, and we'd be called sons of the Most High God. In closing, as I take a look at our text, and what does this help us to do? What does he want us to do? He wants us to be spurred on to love and good deeds. Lawrence of Arabia, there's a story about Lawrence of Arabia, and he had met some sheiks in Arabia, and so basically what they did was he said, you can have anything you want to go back into your land. You can have anything you want. And I'm going to read you a story about what they wanted. It says, During the war, Lawrence formed close friendships with many of the sheiks of Arabia. After the war, he brought some of the sheiks back to England to show his appreciation for their support against the Turkish domination. They had a wonderful visit, appeared before the Joint House of Commons and Parliament, and even had an audience uh, with the king, queen. On the last night of their visit, Lawrence offered them anything they wanted to take back with them to their desert homes. They led him up to the hotel room and into the bathroom and pointed to the faucets in the bathtub and said that they wanted to take the faucets with them so that they could provide them with running water in the desert. He said, they didn't realize that the faucets were superficial. Man, one account of the story says they had tools trying to take the, the faucets off and put them in their bag because they want to have water. I want to let you know something. What they missed, what they missed is you can't have the water unless you are connected to the source. Or as our text says, unless you are in Christ. You are in Christ. Some of us right here in this place right now, man, we have said yes to Jesus and we are following Jesus. But in actuality, as Craig Rochelle says, you are a Christian atheist. You say that God exists, but you live like he does not. Or you say that Jesus saves, but you're adding all these things to it. And I, like Galatians and in the text, and it says, don't be foolish about that definition of salvation. Don't be fooled by that definition of salvation. Those people who said yes to Jesus were now bleeding into adding something to it. And Paul called them foolish. And I would say, let us not have a foolish view of the beautiful, beautiful doctrine of salvation so we can sit there and rest and that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But then there are some of you right now, you've never said yes to Christ and God is not calling you foolish. What he wants to call you is a child of the most of his self. He wants to call you a son of the living God. He wants to adopt you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to, what we call, save you and rescue you. I think it's pretty cool in the fullness of time how God took this text and puts it right before Christmas to say, in the fullness of time, because a perfect God has perfect timing. And, and what we do is we get to look at it and we get to say, man, I want to be a child of the most high God. 
I want to be that way. And God says, this is how it happens. It doesn't happen by following the law. It happens, it happens when I come to you and I redeem you. And I would say this. The gospel is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And my prayer is that you would never, ever forget it. And that you would never, ever forget or drift away from remembering that you have been adopted by the Most High God and there is no better place to be than that place. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I love you. Thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to stand up here, to teach, to open up the word. I thank you, God, that in order to be connected to you, we, we must know what the source is. The source is Jesus. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that reveals to us life and reveals to it in your name. I thank you, God, for our text, and I thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son. And Lord, I'm well aware that in the fullness of time today, you could redeem someone who thinks that they are a believer or is not yet a believer, whatever the case may be. Redeem them. Show them you love them. Open their eyes to see the beauty of being adopted by the Most High God. I love you in Jesus' name, amen.